Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to discuss uh, a topic uh, from from this week's parsha from uh, Parsha Shoftim, which is this this very interesting um, uh, verse in the Torah, which uh, tells us that if we have disputes with each other, that we should go to uh, what's known as a, a, a bezdin, uh, a Jewish court. And this is uh, this is important to know that if there are any um, unresolved issues, um, uh, legal. Um, it's, it's better for, for Jews to go to a religious court than it is to go to a secular court. Um, if that's not possible, then, then, then that's something else. But in general, if you can go to um, a Beisdin, which is a religious court, and that's, um, that has uh, uh, big rabbis on it, and then they, they hear the, the issue and they, they, they um, apply the, the Torah law to it, the Torah understanding to it, and they, they, they solve the case for you. So it, it acts like a court, but it's within the Torah framework. So this is how we're supposed to um, act in our lives. This is, this, is, this is the recommended behavior. This is what we're supposed to do. Um, so, so interestingly, what the verse says in the Torah is something um, even beyond that. It says that, it, that you should listen to what the uh, judges say, and if they tell you to go left, you should go left. And if they tell you to go right, you should go right. And then Rashi brings something extra, which is, he says that um, even if they tell you that right is left, you should believe them. And even if they tell you that left is right, you should believe them. So in other words, even if their ruling, when you go to them, doesn't make any sense to you, if they are legitimate Torah authorities, you still follow them, and you should do what they say. So with this in mind, I want to tell you one of my favorite Hasidic stories, and, um, and then we'll go further into it. This story, I just think, sort of illustrates this point. So, so it goes like this. It's about the Sanza Rebbe. The, the, the Sanza Rebbe was, um, he was actually a descendant of the, the Chacham Svi, and actually... Uh, uh, the, the, the dynasty exists today. Um, 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 I'm momentarily forgetting the, the name of the uh, Bavav. I'm sorry, there it is. So, <laughs> took me a second. Uh, uh, the first Bavav Rebbe was the, was the Sansa Rebbe's grandson, actually. So, so, uh, so Bavav is really Sans today, but you still have Sans as well. Um, and uh, and anyway, so the Sanzer Rebbe was one of the greatest Hasidic masters, and there was a person whose father was very sick, and he took him to see the Sanzer Rebbe. Now, this person had tuberculosis, he was like coughing blood, and um, the Sanzer Rebbe looked at him, and he, he told the son, give him a strong black coffee. So it was known that, that strong black coffee to someone who was suffering in that condition was the worst thing that you could give them. Mm. He says, strong black coffee? He said, go ahead, give him strong black coffee. So... So the son listens to, to the son's Rebbe. He gives his father strong black coffee, and the father gets better. Hmm. So sometime later, the father is having another incident, and it's, he's, he's much worse than he was before, and, and the son feels as though, you know, he's in such delicate condition. I, I, I'm afraid even to take him to, to the Rebbe to make, to make the trip right now, given his condition. And he remembers, the last time the, the son's Rebbe told me to give him strong black coffee, that's what I'll do. So he gives him strong black coffee, and his father gets even worse. Now his father is like basically dying, 
And the son doesn't know what to do, so he figures, I got to risk it. So he takes him to see the Sansa Rebbe. The Sansa Rebbe looks at him and says, what did you do to him? He says, I gave him strong black coffee. He says, you gave him strong black coffee? That's the worst thing you can do. So the son says, so what should I do now? And the Rebbe thinks, he says, give him strong black coffee. So he gives him strong black coffee and the father gets better. That's the end of the story. <laughs> so you could spend a lot of time figuring out what that story means, you know? Like when, when the son did it on his own, somehow there was no blessing attached to it, you know? When the Rebbe said it, even though it didn't really make much sense, it was just a vehicle for the blessing to come into the world through. Or maybe you want to say like this, that because the son uh, mavatled, sort of nullified his own understanding before the will of the Rebbe, and by extension before the will of God, he created a vessel for this healing to come down. Whatever the dynamics that took place, Nonetheless, I, I, I like the story because A, it's sort of humorous, but B, it also touches on the subject that I want to discuss, which is this, this concept, you'll hear it discussed in, in Torah circles, it's called Das Torah. So what does Das Torah mean? Das Torah is, is a very deep idea, and basically, it means that, that, at, a, that at a certain point, basically, if a person is uh, really a very pure person, meaning to say that they're keeping all of the mitzvahs, that they're devoting themselves in, in all of their ways to Hashem, and even more importantly, and this is the critical element, that they're spending their days dwelling deeply and very profoundly in, in Torah study, that they reach a certain place called Das Torah. So the way you would sort of literally um, uh, translate Das Torah is the, the understanding of Torah, the knowledge of Torah, right? And that a person who attains this state of Das Torah is able to understand matters better than we understand matters. And, and so... An example, I once um, heard Rabbi Green give this example, um, that if a person is sort of stuck in traffic, what do they do? They, they turn on the traffic report. And what is a traffic report? That's a helicopter, which is above, looking down on everything, and they, the traffic reporter sees the big picture. And so they're able to direct you in a way that might not make sense to you on the ground. On the ground, you might be saying, you're telling me to go left, I really should be going right. <laughs> or you're telling me to go right, I really should be going left. And the, the reality is that given your limited vision at that moment, you may be correct in what you're saying. But if you see the big picture, you say, ah, it's true, they're going to run into a little bit of a log jam right now, but then it's going to be much better. And so this is the concept of Das Torah. Okay, now I have to tell you something, which is that not everyone who's just learning full-time has Das Torah. You know what I mean? Das Torah is, is a real thing, and it's a real level, but it's a very rarefied level. This is not just, just anyone who decides to open up a book and, and sit in a room for a while has Das Torah. Das Torah is a very, very high level. So, so, so th there is a, um, an imperative 
for us to have something called emunas hachamim, which means to have faith in our sages, and that our sages truly understand. But you, you know, not everyone is a sage. That's so. Emunas hachamim. So emunas means the 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 faith in it has the word emuna, and hachamim are like a hacham is someone who is very wise, who has hachma, that's which is wisdom. So this is a belief in 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 our in our wise ones. So again, one has to really sort of be you know fairly exacting as to who they apply this um, th- this to who has das Torah, but. The greater point here is that Das Torah, in fact, does exist. This is the, this is the, 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 the more critical point. Um, and I'll tell you something in terms of the left and the right, a personal story uh, from my own life, which is I had a business dispute with someone, and I, I said to him, I said, look, why, why should we fight? Let's go to a rabbi. We'll go, we'll go to a base din, and we'll say what our situation is, and then whatever he says, that, that, that will be the answer. So we were working on a project, and, and I remember we, we both sat down before a rabbi who's one of the biggest rabbis in the city. He's a legitimate Talmud Chacham, a, a real Torah scholar, the real thing. And we sat down before him, and um, I pulled out my work that I had done on this project, which was a stack of, 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 of pages, which was maybe... I don't know, two and a half, three feet high, right? And he didn't have a, a, a single piece of paper. And I thought, well, that, that says it all right there, doesn't it? I mean, do we even have to discuss it, right? I didn't say that to the rabbi, but, I mean, that's how I felt. I remember I, I had a big box that I had to literally bring into the room in order to unload all of these pages. He won. I lost. And... I remember thinking, I got a, a, a small percentage of the money that was there to divide up. I got a small percentage of it. Uh, and I remember thinking, that money that I did get, I, I, this, I was saying this to console myself, I said, that money that you did get is so kosher you could eat it. That's, <laughs> I mean, you can't get more kosher money than that because it's like... And it, it went through this this process, and that's the little that was left. But you know, at least you know that 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 money is, is was you know righteously earned. But the the reason why I'm 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 bringing up this story is because at that moment, and 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 he said, okay, he goes, that's the that's the judgment. Now you guys don't have to talk about it anymore. In other words, now you should just be friends with each other, and we stayed on good terms. And, and, but I remember thinking, wow, left is right and right is left. I mean, how could this be? Really, how could this be, this judgment that just came down? And the the, the problem was not with the rabbi. The rabbi is, is a very serious rabbi. So again, the reason why I'm telling you this story is that years later, I realized that the rabbi's judgment was 100% correct. And I'll tell you why. Because the critical factor in terms of deciding this case was not how much work I did or how much work he did or how much work I did or how much work he didn't do. That wasn't the, that wasn't the issue. The issue was, what did the contract say? And according to the contract, he was 100% in the right. He was. Now, did I sign a bad deal? Yes. 
I, I did. But that's my responsibility. That's my problem. That's not his problem. He, he wanted what was in the contract. And you know what? If I were him, I'd also want what was in the contract. So, but, but here you see that even though I thought the opposite of what the, 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 the case was, in time I saw the truth and the justice of the judgment. And by the way, there's a teaching which is especially relevant at this period of the year, which is that when there's judgment below, there's not judgment above. And then where there's no judgment below, there is judgment above. Meaning to say that to the extent that we can settle matters and resolve disputes among ourselves down here, it doesn't have to be done on high. And if we don't do it down here, then the justice kind of takes place still, but it takes place in a, in a, in a different way, right? On high. In di- with different means. And, and it's better to avoid that. And especially as we approach Rosh Hashanah, we should be thinking about that. Because Rosh Hashanah, Hashem hits a reset button, a cosmic reset button, and a new kind of order trickles down into the world. Right? A new world is created. And so to the extent that we're clean, so to speak, you know, and we've resolved certain things that we can resolve, those things don't have to be factored into the new order in the world. So that's, that's better for us. It's better for us. So, you know, this idea of um, Das Torah is, is so great. You know, it's so deep. Just um, that, that, that the Torah allows you to really see further. And, and, you know, I mean, there's a certain almost ESP that can take place. That, that, that you see happening with very, very great people. Um, you know, I just want to share a thought with you. Is This is just an impression. I have no source for this, but it was something that kind of struck me like, whoa, that's, that's sort of intense. So I just want to share it with you. And it, it, it sort of relates to what we're talking about right now. Um, I was just at a, a, a Shiva house, a Shiva minion. And there's, uh, that means that someone, um, someone's... Uh, usually father or mother, just uh, passed into the next realm, right? And, um, and so the person, to the extent that they can, really tries to stay at home during, during that, that week. And people come and they, they make minyanim there. They, they do the prayer services in the house. And um, after the prayer service, there's a, a custom to say over Mishnayos. So the Mishnah is the, the oral law. And, and of course, the Mishnah and the, the Gomorrah explains the Mishnah and the Gomorrah and the Mishnah together equals the Talmud. So if you've heard of the Talmud, that's, that, that's what the Talmud is. It's the oral law explained by the rabbis and it's put in a package. They call that the, the Talmud. So Mishnah is the same la- letters as Neshama, which means soul. So because we're talking about a, a soul which is passing into the next realm, the next dimension, Mishnah is, is good to learn because, again, it has the letters of Nisham. But obviously it's got to be deeper than that, right? It's, it's got to be more than a play on words. So, so I was just there, and I just experienced this, so I'm just telling you my, my impression, which is that, so why is it? Why do you want to learn a Mishnah? 
So, so what really struck me was in the house that I was just at now, someone um, learned over a Mishnah. And usually, you know, you can learn over a Mishnah that something that people can relate to, right? The Mishnah that this person chose to learn over, I was like, really, like just scratching my head. Why did he pick this Mishnah? What, what, what did he pick? He started talking about how if, if a, you know, I, I can't even, honestly, I can't even give it over. But, 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 but basically, the, the, the general topic was if someone is trying to divorce someone in Israel when they live outside of Israel, in terms of bringing the get, the divorce papers, from outside Israel into Israel, and there's all sorts of different halachas pertaining to how that, that procedure would actually be done. So I was thinking, you know, what is this after? What is that today? Here we are, this guy's dad just died, you know, and it's like we're talking about something pretty detailed right now. Yeah. And and then I thought to myself, okay, wait a second, maybe maybe this is why, maybe this is the connection between Mishnah at this time when a soul is going from one dimension to another dimension. Because they say, by the way, that the first week that the soul hovers by, um, whether it's the coffin or the burial place or the house that they lived, so they're still in a transitionary place, right? You wrote seven days always? It's, it's seven days. Well, there, there are different benchmarks. There's the first, well, there's the period before the, the body is buried. Then there's the seven days starting from when the body is buried, and that's seven days. Then you have a 30-day period. Then you have um, an 11-month period, which is during where, when Kaddish is said. And then you have the 12-month period during which um, the laws of mourning are still in place. Interestingly, the idea is that when a person says um, Kaddish, that's the, the, the prayer for uh, one who's uh, nifter, one who's gone into the next dimension. Remember, we talked about it. The, 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 the cosmic map, if you will, is that we have earth on the bottom, and then what we call Gehenim, which is loosely translated as hell, although it's, it's a different idea, but, but you know, let's call it hell for now. Hell is above Earth, and most people think of the, I, I guess it would be the Christian concept, which is that hell is below Earth. But if you want to see that hell in the Torah concept, Gehenim, is above Earth, it's, it's the last page of Gomorrah Tamid. You can see it with your own eyes. It says that Gehenim is above the Rakia. The Rakia is the sky. Okay, so, so the, the, the idea is that you have Earth on the bottom, then you have Gehenim, translated as hell, and then above that you have Shemayim, translated as heaven. So the idea is that every soul that passes from this world goes through Gehenim on the way, goes through hell on the way to heaven. Okay, to use the English. And then the question is, how long is the soul staying in Gehenim? So if a person gets it right in this world, then they zip through. Okay? If they don't, then it's a much more intensive purification process before they, they go up to the next realm, to, to Shemai. So the idea is that even though the laws of mourning take place for 12 months, that that's a 12-month, a one-year period, we only say Kaddish, which is the elevation of that soul, 
for 11 months because we don't want to insult the soul by saying, you really needed 12 months, you know? So in other words, no one should be thought to have needed that full amount of time because that's an insult to the person's life, basically. So the custom sat in that you only say Kaddish for 11 months, even though the morning period is 12 months. Um, and then just one more teaching about Gehenim, about this, our concept of hell, which again is not a, an eternal place. And um, unlike uh, other religions, we say that the righteous of all the nations ascend and have a share in the next world, right? Which is a very beautiful thing about Torah and Judaism. Um, but they say that in Gehenim, what is that Gehenim process? So that we're shown two movies. One is the life that we led, and one is the life that we could have led. And that is, that's probably really rough. It's probably really rough to watch that. So when they're in sync, I'm sure that's unbelievable. And when they're not in sync, I'm sure that that's pretty tough. Um, but anyway, so, so getting back to this idea, uh, this idea of, of Das Torah is that, and, and why we're saying, why we're saying um, a Mishnah um, when, when a soul is, when, to help the transition of the soul's departure. So, so again, Mishnah, that's the category of teachings, is the letters of the word neshama, soul. So we, it's beneficial for the soul to say Mishnah after it's passed from this world. So, so, so I want to just share this idea of perhaps why this is the case. See, one of the scariest Torahs that I ever heard, I heard it from Rabbi Reisman, he's a big rabbi in Brooklyn. He said like this, that, that, um, that depending how a person lives their life, the moment when the soul leaves the body can actually be tremendously, tremendously painful. Now, I'm not talking about the actual moment that the soul leaves the body, although that is also the case. Um, the Gomorrah says that the soul leaves the body in one of two ways, either a hair being whisked through milk. So imagine just you have a hair floating on top of milk and you just kind of just pick it up. It just goes, just goes right through it. And that's, a, that's ideal. That's fantastic. Or like a thorn ripping through cotton. And that's the soul has to sort of be ripped through the body. Right? And that's very painful. But that's not what Rabbi Reisman was talking. That's what the Gomorrah says. What Rabbi Reisman talks about is the next stage after that. If, if it happens to be that the, that the soul is ripped through the body, so to speak, the soul then has this kind of this, this, I don't know, let's call it an existential crisis, which is that it doesn't know where it is or, or who it is. And let me explain that a little bit further. You see, the, the soul is impacted by the body. Even though the soul remains pure, the soul is, is in fact influenced and oriented by the body. 
Meaning to say that if a person just thinks about materiality their entire life, that the soul begins to think that it's, it's the body, that it's also a material entity. In other words, the body can, so to speak, be a very bad influence on the soul to the point where after a person dies, the soul doesn't know to ascend. So that's this idea that it's ripped through. And then when it gets into this new space, it doesn't know what's going on. And it's bad news. But the the opposite can happen also. This is the happy scenario, where the soul is is in the driver's seat, and the soul is influencing the body, and the soul is dictating the choices that a person makes physically. Right? And then if that's the case, then the body itself becomes spiritualized. Right? The soul can become more materialized, or the body can become more spiritualized. That's, that's kind of the two directions, the two extremes that a person can achieve in their lifetime. So much so, so much so, that they say that the, our greatest tzaddikim and tzaddikases that their bodies actually don't decay in the ground. And there have been documented incidences where they've opened up certain um, coffins hundreds of years later, and they've seen that the body, that the skin is still on the body, that the body looks perfectly preserved. And we're not talking about anything with mummies or anything like that. We're talking about just a body laying in, in the ground. So what happened there? What happened was that the, the flesh became spiritualized. That's what happened. That's a, I mean, we're talking metaphysics right now, but that's, that's the dynamics of it. All right. So now let's get back to this idea of the Mishnah. You see, our tradition is, is that God looked into the Torah and then he created the world. That the Torah existed before the world was created. What does that mean? So we've explained it a number of times. What that means is not that there was a Torah scroll floating around in, in, in the outer sphere. <laughs> I wonder if I just made up that word. Um, so, you know, it's that, it's that God had a desire, God who existed before the world existed, God had a desire for the world. And his desire for the world his plans for the world was the Torah as it existed before the world was created. So God then materializes his desire. He makes extant his desire, and that's the creation of the world. But it's more than just the outer aspects of the world. It's also the purpose and the reason why everything exists, so that there's an inner plan and an inner structure to the world itself. Because we know the Torah, even a mitzvah, has a body and a soul. There's an outside and an inside to it. So the world itself has an outside and an inside to it as well. So God brought all these things together. So when you learn Torah in this world, what you do is you're getting in touch with the blueprint 
and the purpose of everything in life. Why things exist. What to do with these things. So now I think perhaps this is why we learn a Mishnah for the soul. Because after the soul leaves the body, right, the soul is sort of just getting its bearings again. They say even if, even if a person, I think, was very, very righteous, still there's a transition that takes place where the soul has to get its bearings. Now, if you're learning Mishnah, if you're learning, these are the building blocks of Halacha, right? If the world is made out of Halacha, if the world is made out of these building blocks of all of God's will, that's the Halacha, when you're learning the Mishnah, what you're doing is you're illuminating the entire superstructure of the world. In other words, you're, we talk, talk about or Torah, the light of Torah. You're turning on a light so that the neshama, so that the soul can see where it is. And that's very helpful for the soul. It's not just a play on words, mishnah, neshama, whatever it is. You're turning on a light. Because, because listen, you know, I'll tell you a story. Rabbi Israel Salanter, he was the head of the, the Muslim movement. He had opposition when he was trying to create his movement, which was to really make people more in touch with the spirit of the law. Not just to, to keep the, the law itself, but to, to, to do it properly, to do, to do the right thing, to be more ethical, and, and to strive to be more ethical. So, so he had opposition when he first started. And he was a great genius. And, and, but, you know, people didn't really know who he was, like his greatness. And so it's the tradition that if a, a Rosh Hashiva, if someone is going to give a, a Torah lecture before Torah scholars, what they do is they, they, they print out a sheet of all the sources that are going to be covered during the lecture. This is so that people can review all of these things and prepare all of these things. And so when the rabbi is talking, they're on the subject. It's not something that they're mildly familiar with. They've really learned it in, in anticipation for the lecture. So some joker... At, at one of the places where he was speaking, took down the, the, the list of sources that he had prepared and posted and put up a whole different sheet with one topic after another topic that there was absolutely no connection between. To make a fool out of it. This was the idea. They, they were trying to... This was the opposition. So, so I heard this story from Rabbi Green. What happened was he showed up at the place... He looked at the sheet, and, you know, here's a whole list of <laughs> things that nothing connects. And he waited for a moment, and then he got up there and he gave the lecture with all of the sheet, with all of the topics that had been posted. And he made them all connect. Now, there are two points I want to bring out. One is the end of this story, which is, when he was looking there and just reading the page for a moment, right? What was, what was going on there? So probably you think he was trying to figure out how to connect everything, right? But Rabbi Green said, no, no, no. You see, the thing is, is that, and here's the second point, we'll make the second point first. All of Torah is connected. If you, we say, Hashem Echad, God is one. If you are deep enough if you are steeped enough in the wisdom of the Torah, you'll see that absolutely everything is absolutely connected. 
So then what was he, so, so he was on that level. So he looked and went, okay, I'll just, I'll give this lecture, no problem. Yeah, yeah, there's that, 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 okay, no problem, that's the lecture I'll give. So then what did he take the moment, what was he thinking about? Whether he had permission to reveal his greatness before the group. <laughs> that he was the type of person who was on the level who could just look at that sheet of paper where nothing made sense. And just go, okay, here's a lecture. I can do it. It's not an issue. So he decided that, I guess he decided that because it was important for him to advance his, the movement that he could do that. Right? But the point is, is that every single point in Torah is connected to every single other point in Torah. The point is that every single mitzvah is connected to every single other mitzvah. You see, this is why it's so important for there to be unity among the Jewish people. Because when there's love between me and you, then I'm able to access all of your mitzvahs and you're able to access all of my mitzvahs. You see, people think that, oh, you know, if someone is super holy, but I mean super duper duper holy, they're keeping all 613 mitzvahs, right? But on a more meat and potatoes level, it's impossible to keep all 613 mitzvahs. I'm saying even if we had a base amigdash, why? Because there are certain mitzvahs that you can only do if you're a kohen. And there are certain mitzvahs that you can only do if you're a king. And there are certain mitzvahs that you can only do if you're a farmer or a woman or whatever it is. So it's impossible for one person to keep all 613 mitzvahs, even under the best of circumstances. So how do we do it then? How we do it is that there's love between us. Once there's unity and love between us, then you get my mitzvahs and I get your mitzvahs. And there's no barrier separating. So, so this is the idea that if you learn a Mishnah, even if you're learning one Mishnah, even if you're learning a Mishnah that doesn't connect to the situation at all and seems almost inappropriate, right? That is connected to everything else. And that or Torah, that light of Torah is lighting up the whole superstructure so that the neshama is able to get grounded and see where it is and knows, and knows where to go. That's my thought. You know? Okay. So let's keep on going. Because I want to change the subject now. There's, uh, there's uh, another thing in, in the Parsha that we just read that, that was very meaningful to me. And I think as we approach uh, Rosh Hashanah, this is something for all of us to think about. So in, it's interesting because we have it really in last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha. Sort of like the conversation begins in Parsha's Re'eh, and then it stops, and then it picks up again in the middle of Parsha Shoftim. So what is this about? It's about the false prophet. So the false prophet is a really intriguing, really super intriguing area. So most people think that false prophets is someone who really doesn't speak for God, really didn't experience anything prophetic, and stands up and is a big faker. And the truth is, is that that actually is a big category of false prophets. That, 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 that is a category. That, that, that's true, and unfortunately, the world has been uh, and continues to be victimized by people like that, who um, knowingly or unknowingly, you know, pretend to represent God. And... Uh, wreak all sorts of destruction and havoc and pain. Um, but there's another category. Actually, there, there, there are a few categories. 
let me just make one and then I'll get to the point that I, that I wanted to make because this is interesting. Hashem says, in the Torah itself, He says, I'm going to send you, God says, I'm going to send you a false prophet to test, to see whether you really love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So in that instance, there is such a thing where God actually gives this person the ability to make a miracle. And then that person then tells you not to keep the Torah. And then that person is called a false prophet and is liable to the death penalty. So there is actually a category where God will give a prophet the ability to make, or someone, the ability to make a miracle. And then that person says, now don't keep the Torah. And God says very clearly, just right in black and white, in simple words, why am I doing that? To see and to test you whether you're going to keep the Torah or not. So understand the profundity of this. That means, let's say I want to investigate whether a religion stands for the truth or not. So here's what people usually do. They'll say, well, was their prophet really a prophet? Did their prophet really make a miracle? So then the simple person, the unlearned person, will say, well, their prophet really was a prophet. And their prophet really did make a miracle. Therefore, that prophet speaks the truth. And that would be 10,000% incorrect. A billion, trillion, zillion percent incorrect. Because the measure is not whether or not they actually made a legitimate miracle or not. The measure is, did they then tell you not to keep the Torah? If they tell you not to keep the Torah, then you see it just simply falls into this very direct command from God, which God sketches out and black and white, for all of us to see, that God says, I'm going to send you a prophet, a false prophet, to test you to see if you really love me with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Now, think about it. It didn't have to say, it could have just said to test you. But there's extra language in there. To test you whether you really love me with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Why does it say that seemingly Extra, why does the Torah all of a sudden get very lyrical, right? I don't think the Torah is getting lyrical there. The Torah is telling you that it's a big test because if you see a miracle and no one can do that, probably what you're going to be thinking is that that person really does speak for the true God and therefore you should listen to that person. And yet God is telling you right now, if that prophet tells you not to follow the Torah, then he's a false prophet. And so a person is really tested. What should I do? But God tells you in advance what you should do. Don't listen to that person. So that means that if you see with your own eyes a prophet somehow summon, summon the moon to come out of the sky into the palm of his hand, and you actually see it happen. And then he throws the moon back up into the sky. Your response was, that was magnificent. Now we have to kill you. <laughs> well, in the time of, of, of the Sanhedrin, I don't know if you could do that today. You'd have to figure out what the actual halacha is today. I don't know. But in other words, 
as I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Rambam, on this subject, and he gave that example, that moon example was from Reb Shlomo, what he said was, that the Rambam says is, our belief in God is beyond miracles. It's based on more than miracles. See? See, because a lot of us, on an experiential level, we see a miracle, and then we get just totally maxed out, and then that's it. No, but it's more than that. It's more than that. There's a grand plan. And the grand plan, the Torah, what Hashem says, that's the bottom line, not just something amazing in the moment. Okay. So now, let's take this into another category, because there's another category of false prophet. And to me, in, in some ways, although that's certainly what I just told you is the most dramatic, that's super dramatic, this in some ways is even more interesting, even though it's a, a, a smaller kind of scenario and a little more technical. But it's, to me, like, wow. Here's another category of false prophet. And again, Rashi brings this, which is someone receives legitimate prophecy. Okay, so now we're not talking about um, we're not talking about going against the Torah or anything like that. This is a completely different category. Let's say someone receives a prophecy from God, writes it down word for word, exactly the way God said it. Okay, so there it is. It's on a piece of paper or whatever it is, or perhaps he's spoken it out right as he's received it, but he's perhaps alone. Whatever it is. And someone else overhears it. Okay? And that person then says, I received a prophecy from God. And he says, word for word, accurately, exactly the prophecy that the other person heard or received. So is that clear? This is the person who wasn't contacted by God. But nonetheless, he's accurately giving over word for word, and he's saying, here's the prophecy. That person is put to death. And that person is called a false prophet. <coughs> so, to me, what that says on a more sort of homiletical level is that it's really essential that the message comes through a particular messenger that the messenger that God selected for that message is part of the message as well. Because here you see that the person hasn't, hasn't deviated one word from the message, so you'd say, okay, so what's the big deal? That's the prophecy. That was the prophecy that God sent down. And yet, the person's still called a false prophet because God didn't send it through him. Or her. So let me tell you why that speaks to me. Because God is communicating truths to the world through each one of us. Every single one of us, maybe it's not 100% called prophecy, but God is delivering messages through every single one of us into the world. And the truth that he's delivering into the world through you is not the truth that he's delivering in the world through someone else. It's tailor-made for you. And you're the one who has to get that truth out. It's up to you. 
Because no one else can do it. If they do it, on some level, I don't know halachically right now, but on some level they're called a false prophet. Because they have to hear it from you. They have to hear the truth that God is communicating through you from you. So now this is, a, this is heavy. This is heavy. Because that means every single person has to ask themselves, what truth is God trying to communicate into the world through me? You have to ask yourself that question. I have to ask myself that question. What truth is God trying to get into the world through me? Every single one of us in our own way. You know, even if we know three whole people, we talk to three whole people. That's all our, our, our circle is. It's one person. You know what it is? It's the cashier at the supermarket. That's the only person who I talk to. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Every single one of us has a piece of God within us. Every single one of us plays an irreplaceable role in the, in the cosmos. So this is something really to think about as we get to Rosh Hashanah, because, because I think, and this is just an impression right now, but I think that all of the circumstances that God puts us through is really in order for us to effectively communicate that truth in our life. And if we can figure out what it is I'm supposed to get into the world, then perhaps we can also influence our circumstances in a way that optimizes our ability to do it. Like Because if I'm, I'm, if I'm busy and I'm devoting all my time getting this message, and I say to myself, you know something, this is really good, but is this really... Is this really it? Maybe this isn't really it. Maybe that's it. If that's it, and I say to God, you know what? God, this is, you know, I don't know about 100%. I got to make a living. I got to go to work, this, that, and the other thing. But God, I'm really going to concentrate this year on working on this particular thing, this particular idea. How am I going to do it? I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to think of a plan. So please, God, give me what I need so that I can get that out better. Because I think that's what you want me to get out. And then maybe circumstances and everything will line up in a way that will be able to do it better. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying. I'm just working here. I'm just, I'm just trying. <laughs> but to, to me, there's something here. There's something here. You know, and it, and it syncs with many, many teachings that I've heard over the years. Um, so, so you can ask people, by the way, and I would encourage you, if you want to take this idea seriously, talk to someone who knows you and ask them, what do you, what do you think my message is? Because we're, we're really oftentimes not great judges of ourselves. We don't have um, the perspective to understand ourselves very well, oftentimes, for better, for worse, because we live with ourselves. You know? You know, a lot of times it's like, who knows us better than ourselves? And a lot of times, who knows us worse than ourselves? <laughs> I'll tell you a story. It's, a, it's not a great story, but I'll tell you anyway. I am... Um, I, I was on this show. It was actually Third Rock from the Sun, and I, uh, 
It was the first script that I had written, and um, I joined the show maybe, I don't know, kind of into the run a little bit. And so, and then I had to write a script in something like three days, which is not so much time to write a script. And thank God it came out really well. And I remember I saw the one of the creators of the show in the, in the little kitchenette area, and the person said to me, you know something, when you write a script really fast, that's when it comes out best. And I thought to myself, well, what do they know? You know, I, I, it happened to be that I had three days to write it, so it happened to me, this one turned out well and everything. But you know, years later, I, I realized she was right. She was actually right that oftentimes the faster that I write something, the better it comes out because I, I double, I rethink, I, I, and, then, and then sometimes you can take a good idea and you, you take it out because you've thought about it too long. And some of the things of, that were really from a place of inspiration, you lose, you know? So it's like here, she hardly knew me and, and she knew me better than I knew me. So, so that's often the, the case with us in, in, in the larger aspects of our life as well, surprisingly. And then I'll just conclude with this one thought. When I, um, when I first uh, started um, you know, trying, trying to keep the Torah in a serious way, you learn all sorts of things, you know, it's very easy to get overwhelmed and, you know, you have to go slowly and you need a guide, you know, what should I take on, at what pace should I take things on and everything like this, because you, you need help with that, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's challenging. And, and so, um, and then oftentimes you say, well, that thing doesn't apply to me, you know. Or I'm not like that. That's that halacha or that mitzvah was really just designed for a person who's this type of person, and I'm not that type of person, so I don't have to do that one. And so, so, uh, so I, I just want to bring you something that um, that Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, King Solomon is known as the wisest of of, of men. Okay, there's a halacha in this week's parsha, in Parsha Shoftim, that says a king shouldn't have too many wives. And by the way, the, the maximum number of wives for a king is 18. Just in case you're planning on becoming the king of Israel, <laughs> you want to know when to get off J-date, right? So it's, a, it's, it's a, you, you get 18. And I would say, good luck, by the way. Um, anyway, Shlomo Melech was famous for having a thousand wives. He had a thousand wives. This is real. This is not one of those made-up numbers. A thousand wives. Why? By the way, because he had he had a, a like this Mashiach kind of consciousness where he was trying to bring the entire world into one family, into the family of Israel, to unite the entire world into one family, which is like if you think about it, it's a, it's a wild, it's a wild idea, it's wild, it's really wild, and he did it, but it didn't work, and the reason why it didn't work is because the Torah says maximum eighteen. And, but Shlomo HaMelech, now listen to this, because if it's true for Shlomo HaMelech, think about how much more true it's for us. Shlomo HaMelech said, you know what, that doesn't apply to me. Here you have a mitzvah in the Torah, someone who's called our wisest person, and he said those words, this doesn't apply to me. 
The Torah itself will tell you how to get to the end of days. We're not going to get it by not following the Torah. But he thought, and I'm not judging him and I'm not criticizing him, but he thought that somehow it didn't apply to him. And us in our lives, how many times do we learn something and we go, eh, that doesn't apply to me. If he said it about him, believe me, we're saying it about us. And believe me, we're saying it a lot more than he said it about him. Just the simple math of it, the simple logic of it. So let's not fall into that trap. All right? If we can't do it yet in our lives, let's be honest. Or if we don't believe enough to do it in our lives, let's be honest and say, you know what? That's what the Torah says. That's what I have to do. I'm not there yet. Or that's what the Torah says. That's what I have to do. But I got to be honest with you right now. I don't believe that so much yet. Yet. Right? But not to say, that's what the Torah says. That's what, that's what we have to do. But it doesn't apply to me. Don't do that. Don't do that. And there are worlds of difference between those different categories. If you can't do it yet, say, I can't do it yet. Or, I, you know what, I, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I, don't, I have to be honest, I don't believe in it that much yet to do that. Say that. That's 100% more preferable than to say it doesn't apply to me. Because it does apply to you. Because it is the truth. And it is the way that we're going to fix the world. And I'll just really conclude with this final, final thing, which is that in my own life, a big breakthrough happened for me when I realized that the sages knew me better than I knew me. And when I stopped playing those games, doesn't mean that I started keeping everything that moment, but when I realized, you know something, there's certain things because I'm so close to myself that I'm blind about, about myself. But they're not blind, because they have some distance. Remember, like the traffic helicopter that sees the whole thing, like the Das Torah, right? They see the whole picture. And then, then once I'm acquainted with that aspect of myself, then you begin a dialogue, then you begin a process of how do I want to address it, and if I want to address it. Let's be honest. A lot of people go, okay, you know what? That's me. And I think that this is really, maybe just because Rosh Hashanah is coming, we'll just end on this last point. This is a really low level that all of us have to fight, which is, you know, when you, know, you get into a fight with someone, and I don't think anyone plans to say this on purpose, but a lot of us end up saying it in, in an emotional place. You know what? That's just me. That's not good enough. You, you, you may be right. It may, it may be just you. But that's just you now. Don't, don't just embrace that limitation as your destiny or as your choice. Because why would you want to embrace, you know what? You see this broken leg? I'm keeping this broken leg the rest of my life. Because that's just me. Why? <laughs> why be an idiot? You say, okay, you know what? That's a very sensitive subject. I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with that aspect of me. I don't want to discuss it with you, if that's okay. Give me time because I have to deal with it. But not just to say, oh, that's just me. 
you, you, you smell that odor coming out of me? That's right. <laughs> Why? Why? So, you know, these are all kind of intense things that we're talking about. But, but why? Because, because we want to be better. Because we want to do the right thing. And, and sometimes we're our own worst enemies. And we have to figure out kind of the, the, the obstacles that we put in our own way so that we can know how to navigate around them. And then, over, over time, over time, it doesn't happen overnight, it doesn't happen right away, but over time then we can make progress. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 